Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Um, I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, was able to spend some time with family. A uh, little participation. Who ate good food? Raise your hand. All right. That was mostly everybody. I, I think if you didn't raise your hand, that's kind of your own fault. Um, who watched some football? Some people. Who decorated? All right. Uh, who did nothing? No one. Okay. I think that's kind of how it should be. You should work for, for it a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about work a little bit today, uh, but I'm glad that you're here on this uh, Thanksgiving holiday weekend. I see some visitors, some new faces. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Redemption Seal Church is this place where uh, we gather around um, the word together, allowing the word to speak into who we are. Uh, who God made us to be, and how he would have us to live. Uh, Not only do we gather around the word, but we also gather around one another in community uh, because we can't walk out the things that God has for us alone. Uh, We need to walk those things out uh, with one another. Sometimes we won't want to walk in that way, and so we need a brother or sister to pick us up and to sometimes kick us in the rear and tell us that, hey, like you committed to this this is, a, this is life that you need to walk into, stop walking into death. Uh, so we put down sin uh, together as well. So that's what we do here. Uh, we hope that uh, you would return. Um, and if you are coming from out of town, uh, we're glad that you're here. We hope that today the word and the songs that are brought are glorifying to the Lord and will help uh, you and your walk to honor him more and more. So welcome today. Uh, my name is Blake Sellers. I'm an elder here at Redemption Hill Church. And um, my wife and I have been here for about 10 years. Um, Sometimes the math gets a little bit fuzzy just because we uh, were away in a different country for a while and then came back. Uh, But this is our home, and um, hopefully we can welcome more of you into it. This morning, uh, we are um, walking through uh, our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Next week, we're going to pick up our Advent series, so we're going to have a break Uh, from Ecclesiastes for a while until January. Um, And then once we finish the book of Ecclesiastes, we're hopefully going to walk into uh, one of the Gospels in the New Testament. So that's kind of, to keep that on your radar, that's our upcoming schedule and calendar. But after today, we will take a break from Ecclesiastes for a bit. Um, The book of Ecclesiastes uh, that, or sorry, the chapter of Ecclesiastes today that we're going to be walking through today is uh, chapter 11. And um, if you have been here the last few weeks, it may come as a surprise to you, we're not reading the whole chapter. Uh, we have had very lengthy texts over the last few weeks. Actually, today is uh, a fairly brief text. It's only six verses. Uh, but I want to encourage you that even though we have this change up um, of, and we are only covering six verses, uh, there is still a lot of importance and truth in this text uh, that we can take away. We believe that all of scripture is good for teaching. Uh, The Bible tells us exactly that, um, that all of scripture is good for us. And so um, we're gonna trust the Lord in that today together. Um, Our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm gonna take a little bit of time to catch us all up because we do have some visitors. Um, And it's been this really wonderful look um, through a book of the Bible that falls under this genre or category that's uh, widely known as wisdom literature. If you aren't familiar or haven't heard of that genre of scripture, uh, basically it's books of the Bible that include the books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then a large chunk of the Psalms as well. Uh, these books of wisdom, they're specifically geared to getting us to align our thoughts and our actions into the way of right living. Uh, Notice I said the way of right living. Uh, Our our creator God has created us in a way that there is a particular right way to be living. There aren't a lot of different ways. Yeah, there are maybe different flavors of of the way to live, uh, but he is going to present to us the way of right living. And And the way of right living that Solomon is sharing here in Ecclesiastes In this book, it's not just a collection of of wise sayings, and it's not only uh, proverbs and and good morsels of fact that he has learned throughout his life in 10th century BC. Uh, It's supernatural wisdom that's been breathed into him by God himself. 
Um, it isn't solely just uh, his experience that he's bringing to the table in Ecclesiastes in particular, uh, but it is God-breathed wisdom. And uh, to kind of provide us with this perspective of this interaction between God and Solomon, uh, we're going to uh, kind of direct our attention um, to 1 Kings chapter 3. Um, it's not on the screen, so you'll just have to, to listen to me. But basically, um, in 1 Kings chapter 3, God comes to Solomon in a dream. And God says to Solomon, ask me what you want me to give to you. Imagine that, if that happened to you. The almighty God of the universe is asking you for one wish, basically. Now, let me be clear. It's not like a genie of the lamp, Aladdin situation. There's no song and dance or witty quips or innuendo. Uh, But Yahweh, the God of the universe, he has this phenomenal cosmic powers. But he's not confined to an itty-bitty living space like the genie of a lamp. This is far different. God is asking Solomon... What do you want from me? It's almost as if God is inviting Solomon to test the bounds of his infinite generosity. And when the God of creation asks Solomon for what he wants, Solomon tells God that he would like wisdom. And luckily for us, as we are walking through scripture today, the wisdom that Solomon sought was not for his own selfish gain. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7 says, Lord my God, and this is the voice of Solomon, you have made me the king in my father's place. Again, the father that he's referring to is King David. But I am like a small child. I don't have the wisdom I need to do. I need to do what I must do. I don't have enough wisdom. I am your servant here among your chosen people. There's so many that cannot be counted. So I ask you to give me the wisdom to rule and judge them well and help me to know the difference between right and wrong. Without such great wisdom, it would be impossible to rule this nation. So if we listen to Solomon's words here, his his request for wisdom is almost a a cry of desperation that he kind of finds himself in this moment ill-equipped to handle the task that's before him. And so as God asks him, what do you want from me? He is really asking God to to allay the deepest fear that he has, that he isn't going to have what it takes to love the people of God. And so God responds to him, Solomon, you did not ask for long life and riches. You did not ask for the death of your enemies. You asked for the wisdom to listen and make right decisions. So I will give you what you asked for. I will make you wise and intelligent. I will make you wiser than anyone who ever lived or ever will live. That's a statement. Wiser than anyone who has ever lived or ever will live. And I will also give you what you did not ask for. You will have riches and honor all your life. There will be no other king in the world as great as you. And I will give you a long life if you follow me and obey my laws and commands as your father David did. And so this is the backdrop, not only of the book of Ecclesiastes, but Solomon's entire rule and reign and life as he leads the nation of Israel. This man who has been given miraculous wisdom, one that not only he will need to rule the people, but also that he will graciously pass along to us through these books of the Bible that he wrote. Solomon not only, like I said, has this supernatural wisdom, but he also has battle-tested this wisdom by a life devoted to exploring whether or not the wisdom that God has given him is actually valid. Putting every piece of wisdom from the Lord to the test. So we have seen throughout the book so far that Solomon has received the wisdom that the Lord has given him, and then he's created almost these little case studies throughout his life, testing whether or not the things that God has said about himself and about the right way of living, if these things are actually true. Wouldn't we like to have that ability, not only all of the wealth and all of the fame in the world, but also to walk that out to the fullest extent to see whether or not what God says actually applies to this part of life. And thankfully for us, Solomon has done just that. He has tested through his entire life whether joy in the Lord is really the highest form of joy whether pleasure received from the good things of God are really the highest forms of pleasure, whether other sources in the world can eclipse the source of all things. 
for his happiness, his satisfaction, his fulfillment, his peace, his rest, everything. And in all of these case studies, the conclusion that Solomon has come to has been the same for all of them. The things on this earth are good, and they're fun, and they have their place and provide gladness and rest to you and I, but they are not ultimate. The things on this earth, they have their limitations. And since they have their limitations, instead of putting your hope in those things, put your hope in the one who has no limits at all. Put your hope in satisfaction and joy and future on God alone. The supreme God who gives wisdom and gives fulfillment and who holds everything in his hands. That's so gracious that he then not only would give all of this proof for us, but then has lived out a life, maybe the thoughts and and things that come to our minds, ways that we want to put God to the test. Solomon has already done it. He said, I've lived it. This is vain. This is a chasing after the wind. This is where truth and fulfillment and good living comes from. And that's a gracious gift now that we have this in Scripture. I know sometimes we can read Scripture, though, and not feel like it's a gift. Sometimes we can look at the the words on the page that God himself has given us, and sometimes we can feel, especially within wisdom literature, where there are these statements and then there are these commands, that when we see these commands, we maybe feel a little bit like our life is being restricted by them, that maybe we uh, don't want to live in light of this command. We don't feel like the wisdom literature that's been given to us is a good gift, but instead feel like maybe they are getting in the way or hindering our ability to a better life, limiting the amount of happiness that we can receive. And I'll be honest, for myself, these commands feel most oppressive to me when I am in fact not living by them, (laughs) when I have chosen my own way. Then the commands of God, they don't feel like a gift. They feel oppressive, and sometimes they feel unfair. And the reason for that is because really we're seeing this right way of living, this way that God has proposed and designed us to live on one hand, and we're seeing the way that we are living on the other, and and we almost feel exposed in our sin. We we feel like not only God knows, but but now I know, and, and maybe other people know who I really am. Sometimes I can then approach Scripture, and maybe you do too, approach Scripture with a tinge of guilt and a tinge of shame and a tinge of maybe that part isn't really for me. And so then we can start to ignore some of these areas of Scripture. But I want to encourage us to not look at Scripture in a way that, that, that feels oppressive, but again, encourages us to look at Scripture, especially wisdom literature, as a gift. The all-knowing, all-supreme God of the universe passed down his very words to you that you can read and take a hold of and apply to your life today. And he has done that because he knows the way that he has designed you to be and the way that, and whenever we walk in the way that we were designed, we experience the most satisfaction and we experience the most joy and we experience the most fulfillment. The thing that would be cruel and oppressive would be for this almighty being to have this knowledge and then to hoard it for himself, to not give it to us. What would be damning is letting us to continue running in our ignorance and heading into guaranteed strife and guaranteed unrest, a life with no hope of peace. So that is a long background, but that's where we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes for the last 13 weeks. This sermon series has been uh, entitled Life Under the Sun. Solomon has used that phrase often to describe our everyday life whenever we are pursuing the things of ourselves, that it is life under the sun, and he has found it to be vain, meaning that it is without substance. So today in our 13th sermon in this series, the primary theme that we will be addressing that Solomon addresses in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, is this idea about control. Some of you I know just, ugh, he's going to talk about control. We don't really like that because we have this idea in our minds that we actually have a lot of control over our outcomes, or at least the, we, we actually know that we don't have the control over our outcomes, but we have this little thought in our head that maybe we do. 
And it forces us to grab on tightly. And Solomon, in his wisdom, is going to tell us that even the guarantee of the simplest of outcomes maybe isn't guaranteed whatsoever. It may appear that it is real in our best plans and our best thoughts. It may appear that it is real, but just like as Solomon has said multiple times, like vapor or fog, no matter how hard you reach out to grab it, the less of it you have. Complete control over outcomes will always be one step ahead of us. And while this may sound a little bit fatalistic or depressing, and like not very good news whatsoever, we do have some very, very good news in view. This passage shows us that as we read it, um, that uh, section that kind of provides us our good hope in view is the second part of verse 5. But we're just going to go ahead and jump in and and read uh, the Uh, Verses 1 through 6 now in chapter 11. should be on the screens for us today. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything." In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray. God, I thank you uh, for this good gift that you've given us, this gift of scripture that you say and that we have experienced is living and breathing and working in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds. God, I just want to come to you and say, I'm going to do my best to uh, portray the, the truth that you have in your word. But God, with humility, I will ask that you speak better for me than I can for you. God, that you would speak better for you in, in this text, through this sermon. God, through my words, the ones that are just of myself, God, that they would fall away that they would not take root or hold, but God, the words that are of you, the words that bring life, the words of truth would cement themselves in our hearts and allow us to take hold of something that is real, that is true, and would, and would give us life through taking a hold of those words. God, we trust you. God, you are a good, good God. God, I thank you. Amen. Okay, so if we uh, take just... A quick look at that section of scripture, it may seem a little bit confusing. It's full of metaphor. It almost sounds like Chinese proverby. Um, if I just kind of read a section of it again, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Do you think that would work if you tried it? <laughs> if you took it literally, do you think that if you took a loaf of bread and found a, a, a water feature of some sort, whether it be uh, you know, a backyard water feature, a creek, or, or a lake, you go to Stevens Lake Park, you throw some bread on there, and then you leave, and you come back a couple of days, and there it is. It'll be there still. This sounds a little bit uh, preposterous, honestly. And, and really what we are looking at here is a piece of wisdom literature that is uh, metaphorical in nature. And it's also, this, this group of texts is a little bit confusing because it doesn't follow this kind of linear progression that we would expect, or at least we come to associate, uh, you know, normal, first this, then that um, literature that, that we encounter. Uh, verses 1, 2, and 6, they form kind of their own cohesive group. I didn't put this in a visual, so it's not on Drew that you don't see it on the screen. Uh, 1, 2, and 6 have this cohesive group that's formed, and then verses 3, 4, and 5 are kind of wedged in the middle and form their own related cohesive group. Um, I'll call these ver- uh, groups 1 and 2. 1, 2, and 6 is group 1. 
All right, so um, there, if we kind of take a look at this from a literary point of view, uh, group one, these verses, they, they carry what's called an imperative verb mood. Um, and then the statements found in group two, verses three, four, and five, Sorry, I know this is getting convoluted. Just hang with me. Uh, use what's called an indicative verb mood. So we have the imperative and indicative here in this group of six verses. You've probably heard about the balance between indicative and imperative before, uh, but maybe if you've forgotten, indicative, indicative phrases mainly, merely indicate something. They are making a statement of fact. They aren't necessarily prescribing any action. Uh, they are just making statements of fact here through metaphor. Imperative verses, conversely, are prescribing the action or the behavior. So this is, again, uh, that group one is the imperative group. Uh, they are giving actions or requesting the reader to do something. So a little uh, participation. Again, you guys did great with the Thanksgiving part. I'm really proud of you all. Uh, but uh, again, these questions are going to be pretty non-invasive, uh, so just kind of bear with me. But I do want you to raise your hand and vote for, for one or the other. I know that will be difficult for some of you. Uh, but who thinks, raise your hand, if you think that imperative statements are the most important to, uh, in Scripture, that the statements that prescribe action of what you should do are the most important in Scripture? Raise your hand. There's no wrong answers. Okay, we've got a few. Awesome. Thank you for your participation. So I saw somebody like, okay, sure, fine. I'll just vote for that, whatever. Uh, okay, so then uh, the, the rest of you, I'm, you know, should vote for the other option, right? That's how this works? All right, I'll just give you guys an opportunity. Who thinks that uh, the indicative statements, the ones that are stating facts, are the most important in Scripture? Raise your hand. All right, so not everybody participated. Uh, so we'll, we'll offer a third way. Um, raise your hand if you think that it, it depends or they're both valuable. Uh, raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Look at that. I got you all to raise your hands. Awesome. The it depends crowd almost always wants that, uh, wants that answer or option. Thank you for your participation. Okay, so I think that the reason that we talk about the difference, yeah, thank you, buddy, uh, the difference between indicative and imperative is because sometimes whenever we're looking at Scripture in particular, uh, we might get hyper-focused on the imperative statements in Scripture, the things that prescribe action. We want to look to Scripture sometimes in times of need, sometimes in times of indecision, sometimes in times of, of like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And we'll look for the imperative, yeah, the imperative statements, the statements where God is saying, do this, don't do that. But sometimes, uh, whenever we, we um, skew too far into the imperative statements, the do's and don'ts, uh, we can ignore or diminish the indicative statements. And, and we would do well not to really go f too far towards one end or the other. If we only pay attention to the imperative statements, uh, we can, at times, devote ourselves, at least to, for some short period of time, uh, to legalistic moral obedience, to really buckling down and following the rules in Scripture and, and following the things that God says. And, and absolutely, obedience is good. I'm not at all saying that it's not. Obedience is good. But sometimes whenever we strive for obedience and not pay attention to the true things that are in Scripture, we're only concerned with what do we do with this, sometimes we can skew towards a sense of trying to earn some level of acceptance uh, before the Lord, earn his approval. And, and the, the term that we use for this uh, typically in the church is called a, a works-based righteousness or um, a, a self-righteousness. This type of view that focuses mostly on the imperatives finds uh, that our standing before a good and holy and perfect God is, is actually quite fragile. It's in these moments where we're, maybe we're doing a really great job being very obedient that, that then we feel like, yes, I've earned a righteousness before God. And as we've covered up all the spaces on our moral obedience bingo card and we're getting ready to carry it up to the God of the universe, before we even get there, the Holy Spirit helps to reveal to us that actually your righteousness in this area was actually selfishness. 
your motivation for doing X, Y, Z was about you and not about others or not about serving and loving the Lord. And so then before we can even get our prize for winning this you know, feat of human perfection, we realize that we haven't met the mark, that we have focused only on the doing and we have forgotten where the Lord wants us to believe, how he wants us to interact with him in love and affection. But conversely, when we focus too heavily on the indicative, the factual statements of scripture, we can fall into this ethereal view of religion that teeters on the edge of philosophy and doesn't include any practical application. We begin to think that scripture is more for our enlightenment than it is for our growth and correction and sanctification. We may think that reading scripture and sitting in sermons and working through Bible studies is a pursuit of knowledge, and that pursuit of knowledge alone is what God designed scripture for. When we ignore these phrases of action, the imperatives, we forget that Jesus in John 14, 21 himself says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be, my, will be loved by my father forever. So this morning in our passage today, this passage has both indicative and imperative phrases. So I want to make sure that we value both of them equally uh, because the uh, indicative statements will help us to then know what to do with the scripture and how. So uh, the verses that form what I call group one, these are the imperative statements, one, two, and six. They're prescribing action for you type A people. This is where you're ready to write notes, like what does God want me to do with this information? So here it is. These are the three actions that Solomon puts forth. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Okay, you guys ready to do that one? Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Okay, kind of maybe slow down your note-taking a little bit. And then the third is, in the morning sow your seed, and in evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, and whether both alike will be good. Okay, multitasking, I can do that, right? That's kind of what the third one feels like to me. So there's your homework for the week, we're done. Just go and do that. So obviously Solomon is using metaphorical language here. He's not literally instructing you to take that bread from your pantries and put it in the water. But this collection of three instructions, they're widely, be, they're widely considered to be referring to two things in particular. They're referring to generosity, and they're referring to faithful, regular work. Generosity and everyday work. Or if we look at it in the inverse, he is speaking against selfish hoarding and sloth or inaction, not doing anything. And so these are our, in two, these are our two imperatives this morning, to be generous and put in some work. Uh, typically, when we think about generosity, we can get laser-focused and apply the call to generosity solely to financial generosity. We might boil it down to a call to give money to the needy or to charities that serve the needy or from someone in a pulpit like this to give to the church because we could use more of your money. And while these calls to action are uh, not wrong, these are good ways to apply a call to generosity, I do believe that, that just... Uh, solely focusing on the financial component would be an incomplete view. It's entirely possible that we can be very open-handed and generous with our wallets or our purses, but still hold tightly to other opportunities for generosity. So I'm going to include everyone today. You're welcome. Uh, being generous with, with, with uh, three things, basically three categories, our time, our treasure, and our talent. Theologian Doug Wilson says, some say that life is certain, so we should eat dessert first. I'm sure some of you have heard that saying. Solomon says here that because life is uncertain, we ought to give the dessert away. Now, mmm, right? Heard some of you. I want to encourage us all, you and I, to, to think about the thing that, that we absolutely do not want to give away. There's probably something that was present in your mind even before I finished the period on that sentence. Maybe it's your calendar. Your knee-jerk reaction is to think that, <laughs> I mean, have you seen my calendar? There isn't even any time to give away. Or maybe uh, in your practicality, you are willing to give time in your schedule to someone, but only if you can see the direct benefit to yourself. 
Maybe it is your finances. The financial generosity thing is, is maybe something that you uh, have maybe so tightly budgeted and managed your financial plan that there's only room for allocating money to a line item if you can see the utility to it, if you can see the reason for it, if you can see the return on it. Or maybe those first two categories are not inclusive of the thing that came in your mind, so again, I'll lump us all into this. Maybe it's your skills and abilities, your work. You have abilities and skills and talent that the kingdom of God needs and would be useful to bless not only the church, but our city around us. But you're only willing to engage in that skill or that work if you're going to get a paycheck in return, if you can see what it is that it will profit you. We all have this time, treasure, and talent. We all have these resources that, yes, your church, and yes, your MC family, and yes, your nuclear family, and your neighborhood, and your city, and your place of work needs. Are we being stingy with those things? Are we only exercising them if we can have this long view and see an outcome where we can see the return in the future? Are we only exercising them if we are receiving payment in return, maybe in the short term? Or only if you can see some immediate benefit to yourself will we exercise our time, treasure, and talent? Ecclesiastes chapter 11, I've made a joke about this, um, or chapter 11 verse 1, I've made a joke about this a couple of times, about casting your bread upon the waters for it will return to you again. Most theologians believe that this um, proverb is actually speaking to Solomon, sending his ships out into the Mediterranean. Large vessels that he has put a lot of time and treasure and talent, allocated a lot of resources to, but they are sailing away empty. And his hope is that they will return with goods and gold and some other form of currency or something, something of value. But those trips to their destination and back would regularly take three years. Three years of casting his bread upon the water, assuming a return, hoping a return, but that return is not guaranteed. Shipwrecks or loss of navigation, there was no GPS, those types of things can happen and then he loses everything. And so really, this metaphor is exactly that. It's a call to generosity or at the very least, it's a call to work without necessarily being guaranteed the final outcome. And so if we apply this specifically to generosity, at its most pessimistic, generosity can feel just like that, taking something valuable and watching it float away and just considering it to be then worthless to you. Again, at its most pessimistic, just lighting money on fire, I've heard it said. Certainly the time, treasure, and talent that we may be donating to a cause or individual organization could be better used in a productive result or productive pursuit that we can see the return on, one that we can see the end result of, one that we can watch the value add up over time, maybe in your app uh, through your bank account. Or maybe it isn't even about receiving anything in return, but maybe you have just been waiting for that right time and way to be generous, or that right time and way to put in work or to do something difficult. But over time, that right time and right way that you've been waiting for has turned into the perfect time and the perfect way for you to utilize your time, treasure, and talent. And you don't feel like that perfect time and perfect way will ever come. Verse 6 in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, if I direct us to that, speaks to this as well says, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. If you or I are waiting on the perfect moment to be generous, the perfect moment to use a gift or a skill, to walk into a smart business venture, to reach out to someone else, to follow the direction and leading of God that he has put on your heart, if you are waiting for the perfect moment, you are guaranteeing a result. You are guaranteeing an outcome. You are guaranteeing that the harvest won't come because the perfect moment won't arise. I want to be clear, I'm not only talking about using your time, treasure, and talent here within these walls of this gymnasium or later in that other building in April, although we need you here too, 
We would love for that. But I am broadly talking about using your time, treasure, and talent out in the world in your pursuits. This call for broad strokes of generosity and faithfulness has been passed down to the people of God for thousands of years from the very beginning. As TJ said a couple of weeks ago, work was here before the fall. Work existed before sin came into the world. What, uh, what was present with work was a satisfaction and fulfillment in God and not in the work. The satisfaction that you relied on your work to give you, that came after the fall. The hope that your work and the paycheck that your work gives you, that came after the fall. I think about what God called Adam to in the garden. He said, be fruitful, multiply. We've heard that one and made jokes about it before. But also he said, have dominion over the garden, over all of creation. Sometimes we can think of having dominion as like asserting your power and dominance and authority over something. But what he's calling, he's calling Adam to and what he's calling us to is to be models of God, to be models of God as we have dominion as we assist and uphold others and other parts of creation to flourish and to glorify the creator. That's what have dominion there means. It means to carry God's rule and authority to the rest of creation. It doesn't mean dominating. It doesn't mean domineering. It doesn't mean having my way with uh, the, uh, the, the plan for agriculture or asserting my dominance over the soil and getting a return. It's about encouraging all of creation to flourish and worship under God. And then the call to, to be a blessing and to work and to be generous, we can see it also back to Abraham in the first covenant. God gave his people the call to be a blessing to all nations. We see this in scripture. Um, it's located in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to read uh, the, the story of Abraham and his life. God tells Abraham, not because Abraham was amazing, not because he was the best at something, but because Abraham was faithful to God, because he trusted God, because he believed and worshiped God. God tells Abraham that he is going to do something. Not because Abraham is great, but because God is great. And God is going to do the work and Abraham is going to reap the blessings. It says, and this is the voice of God saying, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all nations. So whatever it may be, your time, your treasure or talent, this passage is calling each and every one of us to approach our lives and the things that we have are, and, and the things that we have with hands open, willing to give and to work out of faithfulness and out of the good of one another, not only out of the return that we can see on the horizon. And whenever we are carrying out this work, this stewardship, this exercise of our time and our treasure and our talent to those around us, then we are participating in the call and the life that the Lord has given us, call of the Lord that he has given all of his people for thousands of years. But let's be honest, sometimes our issue with carrying something out is not because we don't believe that God has told us that we should do it. In fact, we see the call to scripture, but sometimes we, in our efforts to be generous or to be productive, we may try to look a little bit too far into the future, predict uh, that outcome of what is going to happen. And sometimes whenever we try to predict the outcome, we scare ourselves into inaction. Speaking for myself, I'm sure no one else is like that. And while you or I may think that we are pretty smart and pretty good at discerning and predicting future outcomes, or maybe you uh, pride yourself on someone who follows other very smart people who are very good at predicting outcomes, uh, we ourselves are not world-class experts on, I'm not, on anything. Um, I would venture to say world-class Probably no one in this room is as well. Um, but maybe, I mean, you know, locally, you're probably an expert on something. Um, but even experts, global world-class experts in their fields are wrong all the time. So I have a fun little example of uh, just bringing to our attention things that have happened in the past that uh, maybe people predicted that didn't quite turn out the way uh, that the experts thought. 
Um, and this exercise, I think, will be helpful to us. Um, one, give a little levity, but then two, um, just show us that um, we aren't so good at predicting the future um, or expecting or predicting future outcomes that are going to happen. So I'm going to show my age here a little bit, uh, but does anyone remember a little speed bump in the road of life called Y2K? Look at you raising, I didn't even ask you to raise your hands. I'm very proud. Um, okay, so if you're at least 30 years old, you probably remember this event pretty vividly. Um, for the rest of us, I'll catch you up to speed. Uh, Y2K, uh, that's the letter Y, the number two, and the letter K, was this euphemism for January 1st of the year 2000, which seems so long ago whenever I think about it. Um, but, and so it was New Year's Day of the year 2000. This New Year's Day was uh, not just any turn of the calendar from one year to the next. It was also a turn of the century, but it didn't feel like a normal turn of the century from one century to the next. It was also the turn of a millennium, but it didn't feel like the normal turn of a millennium, like any of us even know what that's like. No, this New Year's Day was fraught with the potential for worldwide meltdown, or at least a lot of people predicted. I see some people shaking their heads like, yeah, I remember this too. You see... The, the real fear in people was that the computers that were kind of automating everyday life, this was kind of new to a lot of us, like general population, people who don't work with computers regularly, those people all, always knew that they were controlling the world. Uh, but for us, we were a little bit afraid and apprehensive about these computer systems. Um, it was assumed, though, that because the computer programming code was changing from 99 to 00, then maybe the computer programs would interpret that 00 to be the year 1900 and not the year 2000. It was kind of written into the code, and uh, there was a lot of mass hysteria about this. And, and it wasn't just a, a few people who were worried about this. It was a lot of people who were really concerned about this. And some of the predictions that were made of the fallout of Y2K are uh, pretty comical in hindsight they would scare your pants off if like you when you were like back in the day but in hindsight they kind of seem comical um, so uh, one prediction that was made is gps satellites would fail and people relying on them for navigation would be stranded so most people are like oh man i wouldn't know how to get from one place to another that would be a bummer my map quest wouldn't print out correctly, or as I'm traveling home for my New Year's Eve party, maybe it would take me longer to get home. That wouldn't seem like a big catastrophe. Um, there are world military forces that rely on GPS, and if they fail and they are straying too close to enemy lines, they could start a worldwide war. Uh, so that was one prediction, that GPS satellites would fail. And then another prediction is that, uh, and this is really kind of clickbaity uh, as, as I read it, planes will fall out of the sky. Uh, that didn't happen, by the way. Uh, there was some speculation that some computer systems would read the change, as I said, from 99 to 1900. Uh, and this possible error could cause computer systems and airplanes to not communicate well or transmit information well to like air traffic control or to other airlines. And this could lead to all sorts of problems, plane crashes, overcrowded runways, planes falling out of the sky, apparently. Uh, but this technological threat, uh, it was taken seriously. Airlines such as Airbus and others, they actually made their computer systems read it as the year 1900 uh, just to simulate this possibility. Uh, and in fact, the nation was in such a stir, even leading up to New Year's Eve, that advisor to then-President Bill Clinton uh, and advisor boarded a plane headed to New York City so just at the right time so that he would be in the air when the calendar clicked over. And this was in hopes that then, uh, you know, as this advisor to the president, trust the systems so much that you too shouldn't have such fear and panic about Y2K. Um, these are, again, kind of silly as we look at them uh, so many years later, so many years later, we're all so old. Uh, but especially as uh, there weren't any worldwide disasters. If there were these disasters, then we would probably think about Y2K a little bit differently. Uh, but in that, at that time, there were so many, many people, so many experts in their field that brought about and predicted this worldwide demise. And that didn't happen. And so again, as we are not experts in fields, as we are not experts, I am not an expert in anything, 
how do I think I'm going to be able to appropriately predict even the you know, near-term or future outcomes that my actions today are going to have? And I bring that up because this, again, gets to the indicative verses that we've outlined. Uh, those are the verses three through five. And these verses are going to highlight some of the areas where we do have some certainty, but even that certainty is completely out of our control. Verse three says, "If the clouds are full of rain and they empty them, or sorry, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie." Okay, that sounds a little bit like Captain Obvious, a little bit. Um, but the, the important takeaway here is that these things are going to happen, and they are completely out of your control. There are natural processes that are just going to occur, and you can't stop them or make them happen. So it, it again, gives us a little bit of this idea that we don't have the control that maybe we think that we do. But then verse uh, 4 takes us a step further. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. And so this again goes back to this like agricultural time where the people of Israel, they were engaged in planting and farming and harvesting. And you had to wait for the right time and the right days and the right months to do both the sowing and then the harvesting. If you did the sowing when, uh, when the wind was up, then your seed is going to not be where you thought you put it. It's going to get blown away. But if you do your harvesting, when the clouds have arrived, that means rain is coming and it's going to ruin your harvest. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to uh, make it mold and mildew and break down. And so uh, it says here, he who observes the wind will not sow. At some point, the farmer still has to sow the seed. And at some point, the harvester has to harvest the crops or else they will be left with nothing. Again, verse five, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The God who makes everything. So while the first part of this kind of reads a little bit funny, like that, those uh, commercials for TripAdvisor or whatever it is with Captain Obvious, the second part really highlights that if we allow circumstance or our expectation of the future to speak directly into what we do today, we may never do anything today. And so if we're always looking for reasons to not take action, then we will never take action. This kind of sounds a little bit like risk-taking. If we are always worried about the future, we will never take risks today. And this may feel like kind of an odd place to insert risk into the Bible, being risk-averse or risk-taking into Scripture. And it may not even necessarily appear in line with the topics of generosity and faithfulness that we've talked about in the first half of the message. The honest truth is that generosity, though, is an exercise in risk-taking. And being generous, we are acting in faith that there will be some kind of good return for someone in some way. We are believing that we can, in fact, live without the thing that we are giving up. Those are risks. And when we do little things like treat someone else with respect and care, well, we aren't guaranteed that they will return that respect and care in kind to us. And when we take a step of faith in applying for a new job and don't feel like we are the ideal candidate, then these are all risk-taking. These, these are all ways that we engage in risk-taking. And this is something that I, myself, I struggle with. I struggle with taking action unless I am confident that I will be met with success. I fear failing or appearing incompetent or unwise. And my proclivity is to allow that fear to woo me into inaction. There's an old word that is uh, used instead of inaction, it's sloth. My proclivity is to allow my fear to woo me into slothfulness. And this laziness, it's not due necessarily to lack of ability or lack of desire to do something, but it is out of fear that effort may result in nothing, or that my effort may reveal that I am, in fact, not good at something or anything, that my effort may reveal that I am not valuable or worthy. So you may be asking yourself even still, why is a lack of risk-taking a topic of this sermon? 
Why is this something that I believe Solomon and his God-bestowed wisdom chooses to waste ink writing about in the book of Ecclesiastes? If you ask that question, thank you so much for asking it. My answer to you uh, may be a bit surprising, but the fear of taking some risk is a gospel issue. When we don't take risks, we are, are few, refusing, sorry, when we don't take risks, we are refusing to give up some level of control. And when we attempt to maintain control of every part of every factor of our lives, we are attempting to take the place and the role that only God belongs in. We are attempting in some way to be him, to take his responsibility, to assert ourselves in his place in our lives, to think that our control is better than submitting to his control. If we If I am in the sole position of controlling my circumstances and ensuring that the seed grows and bears a good harvest, then yeah, I have a lot to fear because I'm going to get exposed in my weakness or I'm going to fail. But if we control the faithful action that we do have control over, whether great or small, we can know that we can trust that the outcome is in God's hands and that he will bring about a return. The return may not be in the timing that we expect. The return may not be in the exact form that we anticipate, but there will be a return. So if we trust in God to bring about good and favorable outcomes, we can commit ourselves to all sorts of generosity and faithful action. We can engage in all sorts of risk-taking because if all that we have is God's and then the outcome is his to bring about, then what do we have to lose? During my prep this week, um, Lauren helped me to remember back to um, this man that we had met during our time uh, in Laos. Uh, Laos is in Southeast Asia. It's a country just south of China. And we were there for a couple of years. That's why the timeline of us attending Redemption Sale gets a little wonky, because we were here first and then left and then came back. It was in the years 2012 and 2013. Uh, But while we were were there, we met this man, and his name was Lo Yao. Uh, Lo Yao, at the time, whenever we met him, uh, was probably in his 50s or so, um, and had been a believer in Jesus for several years. He was very faithful to the Lord, and uh, this was unique that a faithful man who was older um, would exist in Laos. As a communist country, it was very oppressive, um, and anything that resembled kind of America, people didn't want any part of either. Uh, but Lo Yao's testimony is this wonderful example of exactly how, what we're talking about, how impactful faithfulness to God, or how, how impactful faithfulness to God can be. His story is this wonderful example of how uh, sometimes the return, the harvest, doesn't come about in the exact way, in the exact timing that we anticipate it. Um, so um, during the Vietnam War, there was a lot of activity in and around the country of Laos. And that war impacted uh, everyone. Lo Yao was a young man uh, who was impacted uh, by the war at this time. And he remembers aid workers who were stationed in Laos that showed him kindness and regularly shared the gospel with him. And at the time, he made it clear he did not want to believe in the words that these men said. He didn't believe that it applied to him. He was fine where he was, worshiping the spirits as he worshiped them. And uh, he was clear that he was not going to believe in Jesus. So this was in the 1960s. So the, the Vietnam War ended in the 70s, and then foreign aid to Laos also began to dry up shortly thereafter. And the men who had been sharing with him also left uh, the country as well. But the words that those men had shared with Lo Yao and his message of Christ never left him. Our team leader that we worked under um, in Laos, he arrived in Laos in the early 2000s. And he eventually was introduced to Lo Yao. Lo Yao had made it his purpose and his mission to share the good news of the gospel with everyone around him. I'm sure if we had talked to those men who were sharing the gospel to Lo Yao back during the time of the Vietnam War, they wouldn't have any idea of what the future outcome of sharing with him would be. They wouldn't have any idea of what it is that uh, their actions They hoped that their faithful actions could result in something good, but they didn't know. 
And so the beauty of this story is exactly that for us. We trust in a good father who is going to bring about good things for, for his glory and for our good. We talked about it already before. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about pursuing the wisdom of God because pursuing that wisdom and obeying him brings about joy and fulfillment and peace. The final outcome of our lives is in the hands of a faithful creator. Every small outcome in our lives is in the hands of a faithful creator. The faithful God has written these outcomes for all who believe in him, and and the ending of that is very, very good. It's an outcome that doesn't depend on my perfect action or plan or execution, but it does hinge on the one who already completed perfect action in his son. An outcome that doesn't require me to have perfectly considered all for everything and planned each part of it, but he has. God the Father has written your story. On the table is love and acceptance by the Almighty God, and he invites you to rest in his efforts, to receive your value and worth from him and to lay aside striving and seeking the approval of others and letting that push you into inaction. He invites you to let him cast off your fear that keeps you from being generous. He asks you to have faith in him that he, in fact, does have your best interests at heart. And God the Father has written the end. We've talked about Revelation several times in the sermon series. I'll bring up another passage of Revelation as well. It's not on the screens. Uh, Just kind of follow along as I speak. Revelation chapter 22, (laughs) verses 1 through 5. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And this is a picture of eternity to come. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We can act in generosity and we can take steps in action of faithful obedience today because we have assurance of the ultimate future outcome of a final destination where there will be no tears, nothing cursed, no evil, not even nighttime. We can stake our claim on this future hope and we don't have to rely on our present circumstance to define our hope and or our despair. We can embrace a life of consistent joy knowing that the ups and downs, successes and failures that we experience are not life or identity or future defining. We are secure in him. Our assurance of outcome even in the day-to-day today has been purchased for us by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus willingly came to earth temporarily giving up his place in heaven on the, at the right hand of God near the throne. And Jesus lived on this earth a life of generous sacrifice, giving himself to the very people who would shout for his execution in the future. Jesus blessed those around him with his teaching and he willingly gave himself up to his detractors, allowing them to nail him to the cross, beating him, mocking him, and crucifying him. In his death, he bore the weight of all of our failings, of all of our inadequacies, of all of our disbelief, of all of our sin, both intentional and unintentional. And he did all of this willingly so that in his resurrection, we could share in his righteousness and participate in him for all time. This is the future outcome, not even far off future. This is our now, our our tomorrow future that we have assurance of. Band, you can come back up. This assurance of outcome through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it's symbolized by communion. We have bread and juice up in the front this morning with the blood symbolizing, um, or with the blood symbolized by the juice and the body symbolized by the bread. 
Here is where we are reminded together with others who have submitted to Christ and believe of the sacrifice of Christ and the assurance of our future that he has won for us by his efforts, by his perfection. I just want to encourage all um, who, as you are worshiping, come on up and take communion. You don't have to be a member um, at Redemption Hill in order to participate, but we do ask that your faith uh, be in Jesus Christ for the problem of your sin, as, we, as that is what we are remembering. That's what we are valuing this morning. You can go ahead and stand. I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11 to remind us of, uh, of that Lord's Supper. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship and sing.